Can you hear me? Coming through. Great. Um, yeah, well, Cam and I started wondering if perhaps we had done something wrong when we were given this passage to uh, preach across the congregation today. And um, maybe you can understand why we thought so. It's a list of names. You could almost fall asleep, couldn't you? Uh, I was preached at the 8.30 a.m. congregation this, this morning, and I was really worried that that might happen with some people there. Uh, but that's not true, and I'll try and show you. This is, this is actually a really wonderful passage. Let me pray, and then we'll get stuck in. Father, be gracious to us tonight. Please would you help us to understand what it is that you are showing and saying in this passage. We pray that your actions and your goodness to us in Christ Jesus would be front and center in what is said and uh, what it is that strikes our hearts and that drives even deeper into our lives. We long to be changed to live as your people. We pray that you would use this passage uh, for that to happen, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. She wanted to visit some of her connections in East Tennessee, and she was sizing at every chance to change Bailey's mind. Bailey was the son that she lived with, her only boy. He was sitting on the edge of his chair at the table, bent over the orange sports section of the journal. Now look here, Bailey, she said. See here, read this. And she stood with one hand on her thin hip and the other rattling the newspaper at his bald head. Here, this fellow that calls himself the misfit is a loose from the federal pen and headed towards Florida. And you read here what, he, what it says he did to these people. Just you read it. I wouldn't take my children in any direction with a criminal like that hallucinate. I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did. Bailey didn't look up from his reading, so she wheeled around then and faced the children's mother, a young woman in slacks whose face was as broad and as innocent as a cabbage and was tied around with the green headkerchief that had two points on the top like rabbit ears. She was sitting on the sofa, feeding the baby his apricots out of a jar. The children have been to Florida before, the old lady said. You all ought to take them somewhere else for a change, so they can see different parts of the world and be broad. They never have been to East Tennessee. We're used to stories, aren't we? Why do you think it is that we like the stories that we read in you know, things like that, or that we watch in movies or in films. I guess that there, there is a certain escapism that comes with movies. Uh, there's entertainment. There's some kind of creativity, I suppose, on display. But it's not just that. If you know stories, then you know that stories do something to us. Some are complete and, and absolute utter trash, okay? But then there are... There are the ones that, that grab, that arrest our imagination. They are the ones that give words and pictures to our longings and to our fears and to our hopes and our sadness and to our joy. You know it. They grab us. They draw us in like a wormhole. We see, we see the woman who has the arms of the man she loves wrapped around him, around her. 
And uh, he draws even nearer and he whispers, I love you. You. You are all I could ever want. And our hearts, our hearts beat a little faster. Well, some of us. <laughs> Ten against one. The odds are too great. They come at him and in they go. And he's down on the ground, blood. They stop for a few moments. They, they step back to survey their violent and bloody handiwork. And then, incredibly, against all odds, he begins to stir. He gathers himself and he, he rises slowly, painfully. He pauses. He draws in a breath. And then he lets them have it. Or we watch and we read stories that show us the reality of sin, insidious, destructive, as we see lives ripped apart by drugs and alcohol and infidelity and abuse and violence. And some of you know those stories firsthand from your own lives. This is the world we live in, even as we long for a world to be transformed, for things to be transformed. Or we see stories, we read of stories that that stir our souls because we, we see a person who, who gives their life in sacrif- sacrificial service. We see an individual who champions the cause of justice, who changes a community, a, a, a teacher who goes into a classroom full of misfit kids and something wonderful happens. There is this transformation and, we, and our hearts swell because we see a glimmer of what humanity was meant to be like, this transformative agent and power in the community, among people, broken people. Stories do something to us. I want to propose two things tonight. I want to propose that the greatest story ever told is the story of Jesus Christ. That that is the ultimate story that does something to us. And I want to propose that the the best elements of the stories that we most like are actually simply shavings of the greatest story. They are shavings of the greatest story, the story of Jesus. You know, even take those those soppy romance um, stories, okay? Most of them are rubbish, okay? But there, there is a glimmer of something in there. There is a glimmer of the story in those stories. What love is this, that the Son of God would give his life for me? That he would draw near and he would say, I love you. You. You have a sure and a certain... There is an assurance and a certainty that I love you. That that's not going anywhere. That I look at you and I delight in you and I cherish you. You cannot even grasp half the depth of my love for you. Or those stories of the, the beaten guy who rises, the underdog who, who comes up. You know what that is? That is just, that's just a, a small glimpse of the, the ultimate story like that. Of Christ Jesus who is dead and who rises from the dead. Jesus is the reality to which the truth contained in the world's myths and stories is pointing towards.
Now, at this point, we have to be clear what kind of story we're talking about when we're talking about the story of Jesus. Matthew doesn't begin his story by going, once upon a time. He doesn't begin his story by going in a galaxy far, far away. No, have a look at verse 1. The historical record of Jesus Christ. It is a story. It is a true, historic, objective story. What we are talking about here is public and historical and objective. And it is irritating because we can't do our normal wishy-washy choosing of what it is that we are going to accept or what it is that we are going to believe. This is historical fact. You take it or you leave it. But if you leave it, then you leave the opportunity to be involved and to be a part of the greatest story ever told. The greatest story that there, that there is, that there could possibly be. The story. What I want to show you tonight is that there are three things that this greatest story involves from this passage. It involves three things. Number one, firstly, it involves the central figure of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it involves waiting a long time for the promises of God. And thirdly, it involves God using and incorporating broken and sinful people like you and me into his good plans. Those three things, three things about this great story, this greatest story. Here's the first thing. It involves the central figure of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you ever heard these words growing up, uh, but I, I believe that moms tell their kids this all the time. The world does not revolve around you. Insert your name there. I'm sure you heard that as a kid growing up. The thing is that those are words that we, funny enough, we, we still actually need to hear. I'll give you an example of how we see that we think the world revolves around us. You're looking at a photo, 40 people there. Who's the first face that you go look for? You look for your own face. You go there. It's like, I don't know what it is, a moth to a flame. It's the first thing you pick out is you pick out yourself. It's incredible. Our point of view is that the, the, the major story in the world is our story. And that it's ourselves, obviously, yours truly as the, as the main character. It's, it's like we, we think that there's some movie being shot of our lives and that everyone's one day going to watch this. We'll never say that, okay? And it, part of it's understandable because the only story that we have a, kind of a, the most direct influence in is our own story, and so you can kind of understand it. But the message of Scripture is that there is a story, the story, which overarches all other stories, and that the central figure of this story is Jesus Christ. And actually, his story is so great, and his role is so central and pivotal, that even in the personal story of our own lives, he is actually the main figure of that story too. He takes the main lead in our own story. Isn't that incredible? Who is this guy? That he can do that, that that is even possible. Well, our passage says two things. We're given two things simply by his name. Firstly, surprisingly, he's just a dude. Okay, he was, He's a human being. Look at verse 16. Like us, someone gave birth to him and he was given a name, Jesus. Again, what we are talking about here is historical and objective. You reject this, you should reject too that there was once a man named Nelson Mandela 
or that I was born, or that you were born. He's got one more name thing. Have a look at verse 1 again. This is the historical record of Jesus Christ. That's not his surname. It's a, it's a title and a job description. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. It's the same thing. It means that all of the times in the Old Testament when God promised good to his people, that here in this man called Jesus, the promises of God find their yes. They get a tick of approval. Here is the Christ. Here is the Messiah. Here is what the drum roll has been leading up to the whole time. Here is the one who gives flesh to the promises of God made through the prophets. The hopes and the promises and the aspirations are fulfilled. Now, if you know your Old Testament, then you know that these, this fulfillment took literally ages. <laughs> and this is the second thing to understand about this great story. One, it involves the central figure of Jesus Christ. Number two, this great story involves a long time waiting for the promises of God. Have a look at the rest of verse 1 again. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What are we being told there? Well, to King David, to a king of the nation of Israel, God said, from your line, I will... I will give you a son from your line who will sit on your throne and who will rule forever. Or to a man named Abraham, an old man, God turns to him and he says, I will make out of you a great nation. You've got no descendants, but come, come have a look here. Do you see the stars? Can you count them? That's how many descendants I'll give you. And you will be a blessing to other nations. For 2,000 years, while the nation of Israel existed, the prophets kept saying, God has made these promises to Abraham and to David, and he will keep them. Trust him, just as Father Abraham did. Trust him. For 2,000 years, and the last 400 years of that, the prophets actually kept silent. Where were these things that God has promised? Where was this Messiah? Where is this Messiah? Where is the son of David? Where is this son of Abraham? The people had to wait. God will not be ruled by our own schedule. He will work. He will work things out. But he has his own time frame. Now, if, if you're anything like me, then you hate to wait. Especially in this kind of uh, culture of getting everything straight away. Uh, we don't handle waiting well. It makes us uh, edgy. Nervous, angry at times. You even just look at stuff to do with the, cell phone, with the uh, mobile phone. Any delay in what we're, what we're looking up, even for, for, a, for a millisecond, and you go, you stupid piece of technology. What the heck? Why can't you deliver that straight away? Never mind the fact that some of that information has gone to space and back, and we can't wait a millisecond for it to arrive. We hate, we absolutely hate to wait. But being one of God's people means that we are a person who waits. Even now, think about it. We are, we are people who are waiting for the return of Jesus. For thousands of years, people were waiting for the arrival of this same Jesus. And idiots were saying, where is this one you said would come? Do you have any reason to trust the promises of God? 
we're getting exactly the same version or a different version of that now as we wait for Jesus to return. But we are God's people. And just as God makes promises, so we wait. Just as God makes promises, so we wait. And there are things that we need to understand about this. We need to understand, firstly, that we have to focus on what God has actually promised. Because if you focus, if you put your trust in things that God hasn't promised, then you're actually doing something that is harmful to yourself. I'll give you an example, an extreme example. Back home there is this thing called the prosperity gospel. Now, it's a lot more subtle than what I'm going to say, but this is the the gist of what it's going. These so-called ministers of the false gospel, they say, God wants you right now to be fabulously rich and wealthy and healthy. He wants your, your bank account to be in the, in the millions. And if you're in a wheelchair, well, for goodness sake, if you just had a little bit of faith, then your spine would be healed. These are the promises that are open to you. Just have a little bit of faith. The thing is, is that, the, that God hasn't actually promised that for us here and now. And what these people have done most of the time is that they've taken Old Testament promises out of their context and they have apportioned them to us. It's funny in a sick way that in these places where there's 5,000 people gathering, I never hear promises like the New Testament promise of those who desire to be godly in this age will suffer persecution. You never hear ones like that. guess they don't sell in some ways. Now, it's easy to have a crack at people like that. But the thing is that we've also got to be careful. Because you'll know what it's like. There's that... There's that sweet old granny or that sweet old aunt. And she says, oh, oh, I just know that, that God has someone special planned for you. I'm certain of it. Now, I know that they, they mean well, but she's got no basis to say that promise. God has not promised that we will be in a romantic relationship or that we will get married. Or to a married couple, some, some po- person meaning well says, God will give you kids. God hasn't made promises like that. Not to us. God hasn't made promises that we will have great health or that everything will go well for us. And so the first thing we have to understand is that when we are talking about promises and waiting, when we're talking about promises, we have to make sure that we are focusing and trusting on promises that God has actually made. There's also something we need to understand about waiting. What does it mean to wait? The first thing to understand about waiting is that waiting is an act of faith. We're to trust because we understand that God is in the unique position of seeing the full story. I'll say that again. We're to trust because we understand that God is in the unique position of seeing the full story and that he knows where all the threads lead. Waiting says, Father, I, I trust that you stand over me with with gentle and kind and strong and loving hands. And that you can see ahead of me in a way that I can't. I mean, have a a look at our passage. You, You have a look at all the stuff there. Who would have guessed what God was doing? And yet God's hands were at work guiding and molding and shaping. You see ahead of me in a way that I can't. And I will trust you with that. Waiting is an act of faith. Second thing to do with waiting. Waiting is actually an activity. We shouldn't think of waiting as some kind of 
just some passive thing where you sit on your hands and do nothing. Because you know what the psalmist says? The psalmist says, I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits for him. You know what's that sh- what that's showing us? When it says that my soul waits for him, it is saying that his whole being, it is brimming. It is bursting with the effect of waiting. It is taking up his very soul. His very soul is engaged. Let me put it another way. You know when you're watching like a 100-meter sprinter, okay, and he's, he's at the starting block, and now you look at him and you go, look, he, he's inactive, okay, he, he's, he's passive. But you know what? His very soul is waiting. Inside of him is a mass of seething pistons. He is totally switched on. He is brimming. He is bursting. His soul is waiting. His whole being is focused. This is part of what waiting means. Now, as we do that, our, our psalm that we had read for us, Psalm 130, will tell us that the, the waiting room for the, for, the way, for the waiting that we do is God's word. This is what Psalm uh, 130 verse 5 says. I wait for Yahweh. I wait and put my hope in his word. This is the location where we, where we question and where we, we ponder and where we, we pace. We do it knowing that inside of, of this word, God's very own soul is revealed. And we go there not to, to pluck out willy-nilly promises from obscure places of scripture, but to grow in knowing the one who gives himself to us. His heart, his character, his, his loving faithfulness and kindness. And if you get that, if you get him through that, then you have the ultimate promise of Scripture. I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay, what have we seen? We're looking at the greatest story. We're saying that, the, that it involves the central figure of Jesus Christ. We're saying that it involves waiting for the promises of God, a long time waiting for the promises of God. And now thirdly, this great story involves the fact that God uses and incorporates sinful and broken people like you and me into his good plans. I'll show you. Have a, have a look at the list again. It's, it's a rough genealogy, okay? It's a list of people in Jesus' family line. Now, the purpose, the purpose of a genealogy was to show how great you were by showing what great people you were related to. And you, you, know, you show what kind of stock you come from. And this is, this is really where you want to talk yourself up. This is where you want to go. My uncle is so-and-so, and he's some big shot, you know, CEO of a multinational corporation that's going to take over the world, or something like that. You don't go saying, my brother sells crack cocaine and has been in jail 10 times. You don't want that on your list, Okay. A genealogy is kind of like a resume. Who do you want on your resume? You don't want to put that, that job that you got fired from. Okay? You don't want to put that university degree that you started, but you just didn't quite finish it. You won't do that. Okay? You, you pick and you choose the things that are going to make you look best. So what happens when we get to Jesus' genealogy, when we get to his family resume? Well, you have a look at it and you go... He has put the strangest bunch of people on that list. 
The most obvious ones, I'm not sure if you picked it up as Naomi was reading, the most obvious ones are the women. They kind of break the cycle of what's happening there. Uh, now, firstly, a, a lesson in writing a genealogy uh, 101 back in those days. Uh, you don't mention women in a genealogy um, back then, by the way, because it doesn't help you in any way. It's just you get no points for doing that. That's what it was like back then. You don't do it. But we have a look here and we go with Jesus. It's here. Look at verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, from what I know, there are two Tamars in the Bible. Uh, the first one is, is a rape victim. Uh, she was raped. Uh, the second one, uh, well, it doesn't get much better, actually. And yet, here it is. Uh, you don't bring this kind of thing up if you're wanting to prop yourself up, because the story of Judah and Tamar that's mentioned here is a story of a man sleeping with the widow of his dead son. That's how the twins Perez and Zerah came about. Judah slept with his dead son's wife. Isn't that horrific? Well, have a look at verse 5. Rahab. Do you remember her? First thing to remember about her, she's not Jewish. Okay? And if you're trying to build up a good Jewish kind of genealogy, you don't go including a non-Jew. Okay? That's just ridiculous. You don't do that. Second thing you to know about her is that she was a prostitute. She's the one that the spies, the two spies went to go and see in Jericho. It's just not getting any better here, is it? Have a look at the next line. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Again, she's not Jewish. She's, it's worse than that. She's, she's a Moabite. Now, you know, for us, we go, oh, she's a Moabite. But if you know your Old Testament, then you know Moabites, the nation, were responsible for some of the worst moments of Israel's history. There's this moment recorded in, I think it's in, in Numbers, where uh, these Moabite women led all of the Israelite men into sexual immorality and God punished them big time. It's a terrible story. So you don't want, you don't want a Moabite on your genealogy that you're busy um, pulling up. This is like mentioning that, that brother of yours who sells crack cocaine kind of thing. You don't want it there. Now, I don't, I don't mean to pick on the, the woman in the list, okay? I could do exactly the same thing with the men. Verse 2 has Jacob mentioned. He's a, big, he's a big name in the Bible, okay? But he was a liar and he was a cheat. That's not all he was, okay? God worked in him in some pretty amazing ways. But he weaseled his own brother, his own brother, out of his inheritance. And there are guys just like that in this list. And then finally, we, we get to verse 6, and, and now we're going, oh, there's some weight thrown in behind Jesus here because he has in his line King David. King David. It's pretty good stock, eh? Good, solid Jewish stock. There's a good chance I'm going to hire this Jesus guy if he's got, you know, King David on his resume. But do you see what comes next? Jesse fathered King David. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Do you know what that is? That is a blow against King David. That is a blow against the very kings of the nation of Israel, the lines of the kings of the nation of Israel who were meant to be there for the good of Israel. But here we see the dirtiest of dirty laundry being revealed. 
David had a child by another man's wife. That man was actually one of the men who was closest to David. And to, oh, it gets even worse. Uh, David arranged for this man to die as a cover-up for the things that he got on with this woman named Bathsheba. Have a look at that. Have a look at that list. Look at the woman. Look at the men who are mentioned. What are we being told here? This is what we're being told. We are being told to look and see how wide the promises of God go out. We see God's promises reaching. We see, we, Rahab, a, a Gentile and a prostitute, and yet she becomes part of the people of God. Or the story of, of Ruth. She's a Moabite who marries an Israelite man. That Israelite man dies, and she, she chooses that she's going to tie herself to her mother-in-law and to the nation of Israel. And so she goes back with her mother-in-law, and there she meets another Israelite man, a man named Boaz. And Boaz is such a dude, okay? Gentle, faithful, kind. He welcomes and he loves and he treats an outsider like Ruth with so much compassion and integrity. He mimics the God that he's trusting in. And so Ruth is brought into the family of God. And isn't this extraordinary that through the line of an outsider like Ruth comes King David, comes the line that is going to lead up to Jesus. It's incredible. God's promises, they just keep on reaching. God uses people who normally wouldn't have a chance of anything good coming out of their lives. And instead of exclusion, there is inclusion. We have on this list a bunch of wretched sinners. We have prostitutes and liars and murderers. Think about that. There, there is hope here for us. The greatest story ever told. And into the family line of Jesus the Messiah, as God is working out his promises, we have these people who are a part of this, of this, of this, what is going on. Included. Not wiped off the record, not put into the closet, not that that topic that will never come up at the Christian dinner uh, at the Christmas dinner. You just don't mention, you know, Uncle Bob who's done so and so. And so what does this say? He doesn't cut them off. He doesn't cut them off. And you know what? Us neither. There is no one who is too sinful or too broken or too insignificant, or whose life is, is too messed up. There is hope in here for us. There is hope in here for your friends and for your family. There is hope in here for the, the community that we are around in this area. Do you want to be included under the banner of this Messiah? Do you want to be included? Do you want to be a part of the greatest story ever told? Well, you won't be turned away if you come looking for a part here. No one is, is too out of reach or too dirty or too whatever. Because this is exactly why Jesus came. To a girl who was not much more than a teenager, a young boy was born. And they named him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. It would be this Jesus who would come to be the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. 
And through trust in this Jesus, we can look at this list and we can say, that is my family tree. I belong to this list. This list where, although it was a long time coming, the promises of God were worked out so that you and I could be included in the, in the good plans of God. Let me end with this. We, we started talking about stories, okay? And I proposed that the greatest story ever told is the story of Jesus Christ. Now, if stories do something to us, then here is the ultimate story that does something to us. There is a call here for us to allow this story to do something to us. What we have to do, what we have to allow, what we have to prioritize is, is, is dunking our heads and our hearts and our, our very soul and our being into this story and for it to work into the upheaval and the uncertainties and the doubts that we have. To have it become the sure and certain storyline that our story is attached to. We do this or we allow this to happen the more that we allow this to happen, the more we will have a peace and a rest that settles us and that allows us to live as we should be living with God as our God. We need this story. We need to be immersed in this story. Now, how do we do this? Christianity is so simple. <laughs> Pray, read your Bible. Gather with God's people. That is part of the way in which we do this. We do it because as you've come here tonight, you have been reminded of this story. You have been immersed in the greatest story ever told and you've been encouraged to take your part in it. As you read your Bible, you are being invited to see what is on the go. And I know what it's like. Okay, You wake up in the morning and too much of a rush. You're off to work. Next thing you know, it's nighttime in your home and you're just far too shattered. And if you're lucky, if you're lucky and you've got a little bit of energy, maybe you get to turn on the TV and you get to watch your favorite TV series that's on. Can I tell you that what we need more than the, the latest TV series to come out of America, what we need more than, that story, than those stories is this story. Because this is the one in which we will find life and we will find peace and we will find the rest that we need. We'll find the focus that we need as God's people. God's word is life. Do you believe that? I'm not saying you have to cut out all the kind of TV watching in the evening. Okay, There's moments to relax and enjoy. But here is the greatest story ever told. One with the central figure of Jesus Christ. One that involves waiting a long time for the promises of God, but we see that God comes in on the end comes through in the end and so we can trust that it will be the same with us and it is one incredibly that involves God using and incorporating sinful and broken people like us into his good plans you want to immerse yourself into this story you want to take as many opportunities as possible because here is life here is life as it's meant to be lived here is the God who we've been brought into relationship with let me pray that God would help us immerse ourselves in this story, this greatest story. Father, thank you for using your word 
this evening to, to remind us and to set before us the truthfulness of what it is that you have done and are doing in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to trust in you and your promises. Help us to trust that your word is life. Help us to encourage one another as we meet to keep holding on to this story. Uh, help us to encourage one another to take our part in what it is that you have done and are doing. We need your help in this, Father. And so we pray uh, with great humility in Jesus' name. Amen.